So about 10 years ago, uh, I was almost not a Christian. And it was because I was trying to update the Christian faith, kind of fix it a little bit. You know, it was 2,000 years old. There's all these edges that were uncomfortable for me, things the Bible said I really wish the Bible didn't say, things Jesus said that I really wish Jesus hadn't said. And, you know, not being a Christian is a problem when you have this particular job. But something happened, and I, I, I struggle to put words to this, but I'm going to try. I, I read this book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy, and it changed the course of my life. I wouldn't be your preacher today. I wouldn't have cared to be your preacher today. You definitely wouldn't have hired me if it wasn't for this guy. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, he's this man who lived 100 years ago in England after it had become post-Christian, and he wasn't a Christian. He didn't grow up Christian. Um, G.K. Chesterton, he loved to make fun of himself. He loved to lose arguments. He was loved by the people who disagreed with him vehemently because he was full of so much joy and humility and wonder and awe, and all those things are related, by the way, specifically to humility, and I learned that from him. But he writes this book, Orthodoxy, and he opens up by saying, I didn't believe this. I tried to create my own religion. I just knew what religion needed to do, and so I took it very seriously. I created, I was trying to create a religion that was good for not just me, but for everybody, not just me, but for the world. And, I, you know, I, I, I tried to take all the different things religion is supposed to do seriously. And so I created my own religion, years, decades of doing this, and as I was crossing the final T and dotting the I, it dawned on me, I had created Christian orthodoxy. And, and the whole point he, he's uh, saying is I, was, I thought through all the problems legitimately and then I realized that all the best answers had already been come up with. And, and the reason this was important to me at the time is because it mirrored my own life and the life of the friends that I was watching because I saw this over and over again. People who had also tried to update the Christian faith or sand off the stuff that irritated them or they didn't like about Jesus. Over time... What happened over years, not months, but over years, what happened, I began to notice after, you know, five years, that what would happen to them was kind of a loss of community, joy, and love. And so I read this book, Orthodoxy, and I thought, well, what is orthodoxy then? And let me be clear on this. It's not Church of Christism. It's not evangelicalism. It's not Lutheranism or whatever else you want to say about one particular tribe of Christians. It is this. What the majority of Christians throughout history and the globe have believed about Jesus. It is the center of the Christian faith. And once I started paying attention to that, it started dawning on me, why do we talk so much about the edges of the Christian faith? It's because the edges are easier, right? Because you can, you know, get church right by your definition of getting church right. And you can just do whatever you want to do with the rest of your week. You can not worry about how you treat your spouse or your kids or your neighbors or whatever. 
And so Chesterton says in this book, and this is the thing that was the turning point for my life. I hope I can communicate this as well as it... I mean, it was life-changing for me. I can't overstate that. Some of you have had conversations and I've brought this up. Chesterton says this. He said, you know, he didn't grow up Christian. He wasn't Christian. And he used to read anti-Christian authors. And he said, when I read anti-Christian authors as a non-Christian, I knew Christianity was a truly evil thing. But I can never understand exactly what was wrong with it. Because people would say that Christianity was anti-women. And that churches were full of only women. (laughs) That Christianity was responsible for all the blood spilt in history. And that it was teaching men to be passive and turn the other cheek. That Christianity was focused on money and building these giant buildings and teaching people that poverty can be where the Lord is found. Which one? And he said, I started to see the shape of Christianity from the people attacking it. That it's this giant, huge thing. He said, actually... The church has been attacked on all sides, which makes me think it is something huge indeed. He goes on to say, it's easy to be a heretic. It is easy to let the spirit of the age have its own way. And by the way, one of the most convicting things to me is this. Every age gets ticked at Christianity for very different reasons. Every culture gets ticked at Christianity, the way of Jesus, for very different reasons. The things that we find offensive in places like Japan or Sub-Saharan Africa, that's not what those people find offensive. They find offensive something that we might find comforting. And then Chesterton says this, A dead thing can go with the string, but only a living thing can go against it. And this is where it started to hit me. The reason I am irritated with Jesus, the reason I'm irritated with Christianity, the reason I want to update it and just help it out a little bit, is because, Jonathan, you're bumping into something real. Something that you didn't make up. Something that's larger than any one group of humans could wish You're bumping into something real. Listen, right now there's this common myth, and it is a myth, and it's popular, and it started with Protestants, of all things, trying to push back against Christianity. And by the way, they were just really effective, and it got in the bloodstream. But here's the myth, myth, that Christianity is one of many world religions, right? And if you would have grown up in Madagascar, you'd be Muslim. And if you grew up in Little Rock, you'd be Christian. Okay, fair point, and that is a fair point. However, did you know... And you can do the research on this. I have done the research on this. It's not hard to find out this is really true. Christianity is the only truly global faith. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria today than there are in England. Christianity, of all the global faiths, all of them started and stayed pretty much in the same place. They may have... You know, there may be some evangelism that's happened in other places, but for the most part, the cent- no, for the entire part, the center of that faith is still where it started. 
Christianity is truly the only global, multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, it spans the entire globe. Which means, please hear this, Christianity is not an American religion. It's not a Western religion. It didn't start in the West. And it has spanned thousands of cultures, thousands of years, and it hasn't fit into one neatly. Because we didn't make this up. Because we're bumping into something real. And, and what has happened throughout history is that when people try to update it, you know, bless its heart, let's fix this in the 15th century. Let's, let's help Jesus out a little bit in the 18th century. Let's help Jesus out in the 10th century. Whenever people try to fix it with whatever their heresy of the day is, here's what happens. We accommodate Christianity into whatever we want to believe. And then we ultimately become that thing and not a follower of Jesus. So here's how I see it today. Just in America to do real talk. People want to be Christian nationalists. They want to idolize America. Or they want to be a progressive Christian, which is what I was. You want to just update the Christian faith and help Jesus out. Because, God, Jesus, you need a PR person or something. And over time, what happens is you just become a nationalist and you drop away the Christian. You just become a progressive and you drop away the Christian. You try to make Jesus a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus or whatever and eventually you just lose Jesus because you were just trying to make him into something you already wanted him to be because you're bumping into something real, something bigger than yourself. And that something is a someone, it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he's calling us into a life that is real and really wonderful. Because in America, and by the way, this is just in our bloodstream, it's consumerism, right? Like you can get what you want. If you've got money, you can get what you want. So you just bring that into church and faith and all that stuff. And so in America, we want to change Jesus. We don't want to be changed by Jesus. And so the question for the ages is, what do you do with Jesus? Especially the parts of Jesus you don't like. And if you don't, if there's not any of that part, you're probably not paying attention. C.S. Lewis once told about this little boy who was asked to describe God, and he said, I don't know. I think God is like someone who sneaks around and tries to see if anyone's enjoying themselves so he can stop it. <laughs> I don't know what you think of when you think of God. A.W. Tozer said it's the most important thing about a person. The most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think of God. And if that's what you think about God, that's sad because that's not who God is. In fact, here's what Christians believe. That Jesus came to show us what God is like. So we don't first start with a view of God and then kind of run Jesus through that. God is like Zeus and Jesus is like trying to keep the angry Zeus from getting mad. No, no. We start with Jesus... And we run our views of God through that. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. God did not convert to Christianity when Jesus was born. And Jesus is profoundly good. And following Him will make your life different and better and full of more joy and meaning. It involves listening to His words and His life. And, and trying to live the way He would live if He was having your life. And the word for that is discipleship. Now, discipleship is a word, I've been in church for 20 years, and discipleship is a word that churches of all stripes throw out to make you feel guilty for not doing something. 
often something that's not really related to discipleship, right? You know, uh, how are you being as a disciple? Oh man, I got to do that more, don't I? But discipleship as defined by Jesus is actually a real thing. Um, it, it means to follow Jesus. Um, it, but what does it mean? Does it mean Bible classes, Bible study, praying more, giving more? Well, it, it can mean all those things. People are becoming a disciple of Jesus can do all those things. But it, doing all those things don't necessarily mean you're becoming a disciple. And you've seen this, right? You know someone, maybe you are a someone who has a ton of Bible information but your kind of obedience and fruit of the Spirit, your information way outpaces those things. So, in the 1930s in Alabama, there was this Methodist church that gathered together on a Saturday. And they prayed. And they prayed a, a very eloquent prayer. They wrote it down for posterity. And if you were to read it, there's no doctrinal problems with the prayer. It's a pretty good prayer. And they ended by saying, God, please bless the work of their hands. They didn't specify that the work of their hands was that they were about to go lynch a black man. Or I think about Rwanda in the 90s. And how the, the census had asked the Rwandans, what religion are you? And 90% of the country had checked Christian. And the Hutus rose up in a moment of hostility in their nation and committed genocide on the Tutsis. Entire churches killed other Christians in two, in t- um, two Tutsis churches. Or closer to home, I think about the husband who comes to church every week. Maybe he's in a 242 group, maybe he's in a Bible class or whatever, but he has this secret habit that's undermining the way he looks at his wife and other women. He prays and he often feels guilty if he's lucky. Sometimes he feels pretty numb. He knows his Bible. He knows the verses. He knows how to pray. He knows how to do church. But he doesn't know how to stop doing that. Or I think about the mom who comes to church every Sunday. She's in a group. She's in a Bible class. She knows her Bible verses. And her life is perfect. At least on Instagram. And that's the problem. Because she's keenly aware of the gap between what everybody else thinks about her and who she actually is. And she's so tired of that gap. Because she never puts on Insta yelling at her kids. She's so tired of walking into every group feeling like she just entered a beauty pageant again. She's tired of her constant need for other people's approval. She's tired of screaming at her husband. She's just tired. And she knows the verses. She knows how to do church. She doesn't know how to stop living like that. These are not far-fetched examples. These are examples that I've learned in 20 years of ministry and just looking in my own mirror. Did you know you can stop living like that? You don't have to live like that one more day. I have learned how to live... I've seen so many people learn how to live differently. Jesus would love to take that from you. He, God loves not just to forgive us. And by the way, God does love to forgive us. You don't have to carry that around. 
But God loves to help us change. I know this because Jesus said it. In fact, I think every follower of Jesus should get this tattooed on them. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary. Are you tired? He's talking to you. If you're weary and burdened, He's talking to you. I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my way of life upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. He's not against you. He's not looking to break you. This is who He is. And you will find rest for your tired, burdened souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, the Jesus that never irritates us, the Jesus who we make in our own image, He can't do that. But the living Lord can. I don't know if you've tried to change before, but I'm pretty sure you have. And it's probably been the common experience we all have. When you try to change, you just kind of white-knuckle it, not going to smoke, I'm not going to you know, do that bad habit anymore, and then nothing. There's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, and he talks about the three orders of change. So you've got behavioral thing, which is where most of us start, just going to stop doing that behavior. There's the process change. You know, you want to wake up earlier, so you keep hitting the snooze button. You move the alarm clock to another room. That's process change, right? But the deepest order of change, he says, is identity. When you start realizing you don't have to live this way. In fact, you think differently. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I love it in the message translation, it's Ephesians 1. Here's what Ephesians 1 says. If you could put that up. It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. So how do we do that? Well, part of it is by doing what Christians have always been called to do. So, you know, like the way we think of church is probably not the way church happened and doesn't happen throughout history. Church is more than something that you attend. Church is something that you are. It's something that, with God's help and the Spirit's power, changes you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. It's towards the like second third of the New Testament. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. And if you grew up in church, not just Churches of Christ, but definitely Churches of Christ, you have heard this verse before. Hebrews 10, Hebrews is a sermon written by, we're not exactly sure, but it's a sermon written in a time where uh, there are people who had started following the Lord and they had decided it was getting too hard and they were walking away. So Hebrews is kind of a sermon written for uh, such a time as this. And Hebrews 10, the preacher says this. He defines church. And I want, you, I want you to think, not of church as you experience, but what this author is actually saying. In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 24, it says, let us, not, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, and then he throws a little shade, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another... And all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, a couple things. Let's talk about meeting. How many of y'all grew up hearing that passage, right? And probably about like, you skipped Wednesday night again. Yeah. Okay, a couple things. When he talks about let us not uh, give up meeting together, that actual word is the word synagogue, right? Let me hear you say synagogue. 
Synagogue is different than to, it means to gather together. It's different, what, what Hebrews is saying is different than just an aggregation of people, right? It's not just being in a crowd. It's being together. It's where all the bodies of Christ, all the members of the bodies of Christ, their lives touch and overlap. A congregation is what he's talking about. Not just an aggregation, but a congregation. And you see this because this is over and over again in this passage, this idea of one another, this idea of mutuality. A church is where you know, not everybody, but you know other people. And not just names, but they know your life and you know their life. And that's what Hebrews is saying. Don't give up on that. So um, this is really important because in America, you can go to a lot of places and you can come and sit this direction and you can look at the back of somebody's head and then you can walk out and call that church. And Hebrews would be confused by that because church is a lot of one anothering. Don't confuse a crowd for what this is. And so at PV, and this is not an advertisement for this, but it is just saying this is what we do. This is how we try to take King Jesus seriously. At PV, we do have 242 groups. We've already started those. Our, uh, Leslie and I were a part of one this coming Wednesday night. It's where you share life. You talk about the sickness that your parents have or the financial stress that you have. And you share life and people know you. And you know each other. And if you're not in one of those groups, I highly encourage you to be in one. And then there's this other thing that we've been doing, working on for the last 18 months. And, and, and we don't have enough space for everybody. But this is starting. And this will just continue to grow. It's discipleship groups, or we call them D groups. And our entire eldership has gone through it. And we're ready to start a few new groups. Here's some pictures of some D groups that have been happening. Here's what a D group is. It's a group of uh, three to five men or women. And, and sometimes they'll meet at a 4 p.m. on a Tuesday or a Thursday morning coffee together. And here's how it starts. It starts by a, one person sharing their, their own story, sharing their spiritual autobiography, and being very transparent and then you get to know each other in a way that you can't in a room like this. And then you share life together. You challenge each other. And you spur one another on to become like Jesus. Now, you could come to this room every single weekend, every single Sunday, and, and you know pat yourself on the back. But that's not what Hebrews 10 is talking about. You're not really obeying Hebrews 10 unless you're much more deeply cemented into Christian community. And, and by the way, I want to brag on our shepherds because the, every single shepherd has done this. I don't know how many churches could get their entire eldership to participate in something like this, but it's because our entire vision for the next 10 years is to go deeper in the Lord because honestly, you know this. Normal isn't working. It's not working for anyone. And since our vision is that, our elders knew they had to, you can't lead someone where you're not willing to go. And all 242 groups and on a deeper level, D groups really are, is just one anothering. Because Jesus lived life a certain way. 
He lived it in community with, with you know, he, he hiked with these people. He, he ate meals with these people. They shared their opinions. And sometimes Jesus pushed back. And sometimes he pushed back pretty hard, right? He served with these people. And here's what I want you to see that Hebrews 10 is trying to say. Because I do think this is the whole thing when it comes to what we think about when we imagine our life together. Notice what it said. Consider one another. That's the first thing. Considering one another. Now, think about that. What does considering mean? It means you, you look at the people in your life. You reflect on them about how you can help serve them, how to lead them into more loving character. Okay, I, I'm in counseling right now. I've been in counseling before. I've been, I've been like pastorally a counselor before. And what do you do in counseling? Some of y'all are in counseling now or you've been in it or maybe you are a counselor. What do you do when you're a counselor? You pay attention. You consider. Counselors take notes. Why do they take notes? Because they're considering you. They're not just shooting off their mouth, I hope. <laughs> right? They're considering you. They're asking how can I help this person become less anxious or less angry? How can I help this person deal with their inability to handle disappointment? How can I help this person forgive? That's what a counselor is supposed to do. In a healthy Christian community, we do that for one another. We're considering one another. Not taking notes. In our original D group, Jay Morgan was in our D group. He's one of our shepherds. And he took notes and it kind of freaked the rest of us out like... This isn't going to be published anywhere, is it, Jay? But he was doing that because he was trying to consider us, how to help us grow. And so we're intentional about that. Are you listening to other people in your life's hopes and aspirations? Are you sharing your sins and your weaknesses and your strengths and capabilities? Do we even talk like that? So, by the way, I think uh, women find this more natural than guys do. But that's not a let us off the hook, guys. Because this is not a gender-specific command. The Bible does not say, you know, depending on your gender, you know, spur one another on to love and good works. And by the way, that word spur, if you grew up in church and you grew up here in this passage, you're like, oh, that's so poetic. It's a precious moments verse. Let's, let's put that on like, you know, crochet and hang it on a wall or porcelain. I lived in West Texas for eight and a half years. Those people know what a spur is. You think horses think spur is poetic? You know what a spur does, right? The actual Greek word there means irritate each other. And some of you are thinking, oh, I've been in that church before. <laughs> but not irritate like, you know, just to be a pest or an annoyance or whatever, but challenge one another. Because here's the thing, if we don't do this, here's what happens. And you see this, you see this. And your idea of love becomes sentimental. Everybody thinks they're loving. Every, and, and what you're seeing culturally as people become more and more post-Christian is that you have people who love humanity. It's their neighbors they can't stand. <laughs> but, man, I love humanity. It's just my girlfriend is so irritating. And so... Your idea of love becomes not rooted in reality because we are so good at tricking ourselves. And so to really become a loving person, you're going to have to allow people to lovingly irritate you. And you know what this is like? I think that one of the best examples of this is in um, the Greek 
Odyssey? Odysseus is going home. He's on a boat. Uh, he's the captain of the ship, and he knows he's about to um, uh, go past these sirens, these like kind of mermaid creatures who, when they sing, it drives male desire mad. And so what happens is as these boats are going past the sirens, the, the sailors will hear the song of the sirens, and they'll steer onto the rocks. And Odysseus knows this is about to happen. So he tells all the sailors on his boat, put wax in your ears so you can't hear them. I will keep my ears open because I have to be able to pay attention to know uh, how to help us, you know, navigate these waters. But tie me to the mast of the boat. And when we get close to the sirens, stop listening to me. Because I will lose my mind. Don't listen to anything I say. What is he doing? He's saying to these people, listen, I want you to give me what I need, not what I want. And this is really important because, you know, the Bible has a really big nuanced view of what it is when we talk about sin. Sin is not just to, you know, not cuss or chew or go with girls who do. It's not just to not use those words or not watch that movie. In fact... One of the biggest things about sin, and we'll kind of talk about this next week, but one of the biggest things about sin is that my biggest sins, your biggest sins, are the ones we're kind of self-deceived about. And a mark of a mature Christian community is that members know that. And so we have accountability with one another. And this is what it feels like. And this is not going to sound good to Americans, so maybe you're going to be tempted to just... Update it. But what it fleshes out like in life is something like this. I know the Bible says we shouldn't be spending all our money on ourselves. I know we're supposed to give a lot of it away. But I really like spending money on myself. I know the Bible says we should be forgiving. But I like holding grudges. I know we're not supposed to be filled with self-pity, but I get really self-absorbed. And I really like this kind of victim mentality. And, And telling other people, not everyone, but a smaller group of people who you know their stuff too. Telling them, when you see me doing that, I give you permission to lovingly challenge me. I give you permission to spur me on. I want you to to bring it up. Do Do you have that? Maybe not. And if so, let me tell you, you came by that naturally. Because we live in the modern, late modern West. And what we were all raised in, no matter what you did or did not grow up doing, what we were all raised in is the kind of spirit of our age. And let me just say it for you. The spirit of our age is only I have the right to decide what's right or wrong for me. I decide what I'm going to do with my life, how I'm going to spend the money I have. It's nobody's business but mine, who I date or what I do. And if that's you, then in all love, and I sincerely mean this, I hope you hear this as a warning, but a loving one. You're going to have a lonely life. Because what I just described is what sociologists called expressive individualism. 
that the highest value is that you get to self-determine. I have the right to decide what's right or wrong for me. Now you can either have that, that kind of individualistic freedom, or you can have a loving community. You cannot have both. And what we've tried to do is both. And what we've wound up with is a crowd. And so, consider one another. We're paying attention to each other. We, we spur one another on. God has made you for a reason. And then we encourage. You see that last one? You encourage one another. That word actually means to come alongside and call. You, you can do this. It's like midwife telling a woman in the middle of labor pains, you can do this. Breathe. You can get through this. We encourage one another. What I see in American churches is that if some churches try to do this, what they do is they err on one of those and not all three. We are not a community of jerks that we call discipleship. We're a community that believes God's good future for each one of our life. You need challenging. You also need support. You need someone who sees the truth about you really. And not just part of it, but all of the truth. Because without that, it doesn't produce love and good deeds. That doesn't produce Christ-like character. But this is what we have to do. Now listen, this might sound intimidating. And if it is, then I'd start with a 242 group. Get involved in that kind of community. Or at least be honest that we're not quite living up to the thing that Jesus calls us to. But I can tell you this. As someone, when I first started doing a D group, I was intimidated. But on this side of it, i got to tell you, it feels pretty wonderful. I am known and I know. I feel loved, challenged, and supported. I feel like I'm a part of a real church through and through. But don't just take my word for it. Here is a story of a D group that has just formed over the past few months. And you may know some of these people. Well, two and a half years ago, I moved to Arkansas. I took a leap of faith, left my job after 25 years and moved here. And when I got here, um, I had opportunities to do some community service work, but never could really get connected. So I was at home one day and I was praying and just asking God to direct me to a job where I could glorify him in the middle of it. And so he led me to Kroger. So when I got there, I met some wonderful people, had some great co-workers, but Michelle came to work for us and we just just hit it off and we started talking one day and we were talking about church and talking about Jesus and how much he loves us. We clicked and one day she asked me if I wanted to go to Bible study and I was so excited, you know, yes, I want to do that. And so I did and came over to her house that week and then I met Karen Hughes and we got to know each other a little bit more, you know, and Karen had asked me if I wanted to go to church and I said yes and so this was back in May. And so every week she picks me up and takes me to church. I uh, had been driving by myself for the last year to church, and I realized I needed, um, I needed to do, I needed to reach out, and I prayed that the Lord would give me something to, um, and somebody in my life that I could reach.
started giving her directions on how to get to PV, and then I thought, oh, Michelle, I'll just come and pick you up. And at the same time, I met another lady named Beatrice, who is um, my neighbor. So every Sunday morning, I pick up Beatrice and uh, Michelle and also Lydia. But Michelle and Beatrice um, did not have a strong background in, in Bible knowledge. And so I talked to Linda Smith about what we could do, uh, what class I could take her to. And Linda suggested that she teach a small group, just just my three ladies, or my, two of my ladies. Lydia was already had a class to go to. And uh, so she teaches uh, Michelle and Beatrice and and Rika would come, and um, Kimberly Jones, and so Rika and Kimberly Jones have been baptized, and Michelle has placed membership. So it's it's been a wonderful, a wonderful little class. We've grown to love one another, and we we meet every Sunday morning, and um, and we we have it's just been a great experience. <laughs> so in the meantime, I was going to my hairdresser on a regular basis and telling her what's been going on in my life, you know. And so she finally asked me, you know, about, you know, you're involved in so much. I mean, what do, what do y'all have? And I said, oh, well, let me find out because there's a lot that she could, could see a change in me. Not only was D Group an opportunity for us to love on Michelle and show her the love of Jesus, but also for her to love on us as well. So we have been just thrilled that she's joined our church. I'm excited about being at PV, and I'm excited about what our future brings, uh, especially with our D group and with the other ladies in our church. So we're super excited. When Courtney was making that video afterward, they said, we didn't even know we had a story. We were just doing this which is normal. I mean, that's what normal discipleship looks like. And this is the whole reason we're here today. Here's the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said, if you could put that up, Christ works on us all in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. We are carriers of Christ to each other. It's easy to think the church has many purposes, education, building, missions, holding services, but the purpose of all these purposes is one. The church has no other purpose than to draw people into Christ, to make them like little Christ. If they're not doing that, then all the cathedrals, missions, sermons, even the teachings of the Bible are simply a waste of time. The reason your heart is hungry for this. It's the same reason you just showed up today. Even if you just showed up out of habit. Because you don't have to live like this. You can live better. Your life can be full of much more joy, the kind of joy you were made for. And it wouldn't take long for you just to hear some of the stories of God has changed people in this building right now. Can I get a testimony from somebody whose God has changed your life? You've seen, you once were this, and now you are this. And it's not like some pretend before or after. It's the real deal because you're bumping into something real. Something bigger than you, something bigger than us, something bigger than what we would wish it would be. 
It's the real living God. And the real living God has changed people throughout the centuries. He's changed the world. He became one of us so we could become like Him. Let's stop wasting time. This is a curriculum for Christ-likeness.